Well, good evening and welcome, my dear listeners, to Voices of the Sacred Feminine, broadcasting across the globe. I'm your host, Karen Tate, author of Goddess Calling, editor of Voices of the Sacred Feminine, Conversations to Reshape Our World, Conversations We Need to Foster a New Normal, a better quality of life for most of us as we strive to create a world free of oppression, domination, inequality, and war, a world where we value each other and Mother Earth. Well, that uh, rather unusual opening tonight was uh, the Bee Mantra by the late Lane Redman, who I memorialized in the Voices of the Sacred Feminine Anthology. It was my great pleasure to have Lane on the show numerous times, and I'm appreciative she always gifted us with her music, which is perfect for tonight's show, because we're going to be talking about Artemis of the Ephesians, known by one of her sacred names as the Queen Bee. And if we're talking Artemis, you know I will be chatting with old friend Dr. James Reedfeld, who has just written the most incredible book on Artemis, entitled Artemis of the Ephesians, Mystery, Magic, and Her Sacred Landscape. Yes, Artemis has been trending here on the show as we've been talking about Artemis as archetype with Jean Shinoda Bowen in recent uh, in recent weeks. And uh, as we'll soon talk about uh, warrior women like the Amazons who were said to possibly embrace Artemis as their deity. But tonight we're taking a different approach. We'll be talking about the real cult of Artemis of Ephesus in Turkey. And no doubt James will share some of the things from his book that are as yet unpublished. So, lucky us. I think you'll be surprised at some of the things Dr. Riefeld has to say about Artemis. She is an incredible powerhouse of a goddess. And you know she's different than the Greek Artemis, too. Uh, She might have even been more popular than Isis, and you know how popular Isis was and is across so many lands. Artemis was considered so powerful that James has images in his book showing Zeus even called upon Artemis and availed himself of her powers. So stay tuned in to hear about Artemis of the Ephesians and the tour James and I are leading to Turkey in May. And registration is closing soon, so if you've been thinking about it, time to get off the fence. And then there's the Big Bash, uh, an Artemis ritual he's having at the Goddess Temple in Orange County on March 28th to officially launch his book in the world. After my talk with James, uh, we have returning to the show our resident astrologer, Kathy Pagano, and it's a crucial time to hear what she has to say as Uranus squares Pluto, or maybe it's Pluto squares Uranus, I'm not sure. But that happens on March 17th, and it's very significant, so you want to know about that. So don't go away, grab a cup of tea, glass of wine, get comfortable. So let's get right into it because we have so much to say. Let me start uh, by sharing uh, Dr. Reedfield's bio with you. And uh, it's been some time since we've had him with us on the show, uh, although you might have read the lovely essay he contributed to Voices of the Sacred Feminine, uh, the anthology uh, titled The Little Goddess, Equality Through Love. But even though he wrote that touching piece from the heart, he is a brilliant and accomplished scholar. He's considered one of the foremost academic authorities on Artemis of the Ephesians. Dr. James Reedfeld received his degree 
his Ph.D. from Claremont Graduate University uh, in Religious Studies in 2006, combining his discipline with history and archaeology. His specialties include the history of Christianity in the early medieval and Byzantine periods, New Testament studies, and Greco-Roman religions. Also at Claremont, uh, Dr. Reedfield monitored in Islam and Hinduism, focusing upon Hindu goddess traditions in the latter field of concentration. Reedfield received both his Bachelor of Arts and his Master's of Arts in History at California State University Fullerton in 91 and 98. He's currently teaching in both the Comparative Religion and History Department at Cal State Fullerton. Every Wednesday night, uh, Dr. Reedfield can be heard on his own radio show entitled Myth and Legend, History and Religion on Passion Voices Radio. Reedfield has published many articles and is now venturing into writing books as well. In 2012, he published a mini-book on the London Fire of 1666 entitled London in Flames. As we've already said, in 2014, uh, he contributed to uh, Voices of the Sacred Feminine Anthology with his contribution, The Little Goddess, Equality Through Love, and um, his just-released book, which we're talking about tonight, uh, Artemis of the Ephesians, Magic, Mysteries, and Sacred Landscapes. Uh, it's his second book, and it's focused on deciphering the local beliefs of the city of Ephesus in conjunction to their famous goddess. So, James, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Well, it's very much. Have you that was a nice introduction, too. <laughs> well, you deserve it. You deserve it. It's uh, so good to have you back. And, you know, I'm reminded as I read your bio, there's so many other topics we could have you back on the show to talk about. So we'll have to think about that once we get past this big Artemis push. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so Anything um, related to Turkey, too. Okay, okay, great. Yeah, I know you've been there a few times, and uh, we're going to talk about the turkey trip uh, before we let you get off to your, uh, you have a talk tonight, I know, so um, you've been really busy since the new book has come out. Um, So why don't we start, uh, why don't you tell me uh, how much of the belief belief system of Artemis Ephesia um, have you actually uncovered? Well, this is just it. Uh, Really, uh, what, what drives me crazy is is that for for all too long it's popular to say that uh with the exception of like early christianity and judaism uh that we cannot fully understand uh the details of greek and roman beliefs uh in the first centuries and and uh, it, you know what happens is this is that a lot of scholars just don't do their homework a lot of Historians don't know archaeology. A lot of archaeologists don't interact with historians. And the problem is, is that everybody has a piece of the information, but nobody seems to get along. What I did is I got busy sewing all these pieces together from uh, these various groups that don't like to share. And we, there's so much that we know. In fact, it gets to the point where... Um, I I believe in this book, I have deciphered the majority of the beliefs and perspectives of Artemis of the Ephesians in the first centuries uh, CE and second centuries CE uh, from the inscriptions, from literary sources, from archaeology. Really, it's all kind of put back together again to the point where I can tell you exactly what the rituals were like, what kind of wine they served, 
who are the priests and priestesses that serve them, right down to the names of the people who handed out the towels for the sacrifice. So I would say quite a bit. And um, I think that this is important because this is the first time that we have a Greco-Roman belief system that is so fully deciphered in comparison to, for example, early Christianity and Judaism from the first century CE. Hmm. Well, you know, it, and, it, and this is important for, you know, those of us uh, neo-pagans who are trying to reconstruct, uh, you know, our, our spirituality, our religion. Uh, I think I've heard you say that they could literally take your book and devise a contemporary cult of, of Artemis based on actual, authentic, um, you know, uh, ways that they did things, the songs and the prayers and uh, uh, all of the practices. Is, is, is that true? It is true. Uh, what you can do with this book, there's a few rituals that you probably don't want to do. Uh, last I heard, a uh, bull sacrifice can be a little bit messy and, and kind of bloody. Uh, so if you're a pure reconstructionist, the information is there, but it may be difficult. But yes, uh, you can take this book and you can apply it to a contemporary setting and you can follow the calendar that's included in the book and as a result, you can indeed uh, be able to uh, resurrect many of the ideas and the spirit of the age, so to speak. Uh, capture the atmosphere, the excitement in the air, so to speak. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and, and we can get creative, too, because I'll just dangle a little carrot. You know, I, I mentioned that you're going to be doing this ritual uh, on the 28th at the Goddess Temple to launch the book. And, you know, you sort of get around the idea of, I'm not going to say how, you know, people have to come and see. But, you know, you get a, you know, you we have a bull sacrifice, but... It's kind of a contemporary version of a bull sacrifice, and maybe that's all we should say right now. <laughs> well, 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 yeah, and, and Karen, I, I do want to say this, is that because the cult of Artemis of the Ephesians changed constantly through time, I mean, really, it's not a constant. It was different uh, in the first century BCE. In the first century CE, there were transformations. In the second century, in the third century, what I'm trying to say is still... Uh, even modifications for today will still, as long as you remain true to the essentials, it still really is the cult of Artemis of the Ephesians because even they did. Even they constantly updated uh, the beliefs according to the contemporary times at that time. Right. Well, well, you know, when we used to, you know, when my nonprofit used to recreate the ISIS rituals, of course, we couldn't do everything the ancients did. I mean, uh, you know, we couldn't build a ship and fill it, uh, fill it full of uh, offerings and, and launch it out to sea. So, you know, we made ice boats and we launched ice boats. I mean, that's what's called, uh, this is a living tradition. You know, it changes mm -hmm. with time. And uh, I, yeah. I think that's, that's what you're saying. You know, we can feel like we're doing something authentic even if we put a contemporary twist on it. Right, because they did. <laughs> they, they constantly updated their own belief system over the years, over the centuries. So uh, that would be that would be true. Well, you know that this might be a good place to segue and say, you know, um, the, their belief system sort of changed over time. Isn't that reflected in her statue? Yes. 
the problem is when it comes to the cult statue, which is, of course, is the protuberances, the polymastic aspect, or as many people like to say, those breasts. What are they? What do they represent? And everybody seems to have their ideas. What I want to say is that when it comes to the cult image of Artemis of the Ephesians, the understanding of that image also changes over a period of time, hearkening back uh, to the, the early period of, of this cult when it was basically an agrarian society that's focused upon fertility, especially connected to the fields, what will happen is that the cult statue and those protuberances, those, 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 those aspects, those little gobular pieces, um, they actually represented fruit in those days. What would happen is you would, you would hang the first fruits of your sacrifice after the harvest around the neck of Artemis, and she would bless it with her special powers. And so that's the way it was. It was a society where it was based upon an agrarian collective sense. But what's going to happen is that in time, um, as Artemis starts connecting with individual personal needs that people had, when she becomes a, a nutrix, the one that nourishes her followers, it is at that point where those protuberances do indeed become breasts from the perspective of many individuals. And it's mentioned, by the way, not only by two ancient writers, but there are many of the statues themselves that have nipples that are carved right into, this, into those, those protuberances. Having said that, you know, there are other people who continually viewed those as hanging fruit or bull testicles. And, the, and I think the difficulty is today is that we want to have a monolithic interpretation. We want to say it's all this. Those protuberances of our only breasts, our only hanging fruits, our only bee eggs, our only astrological symbols. And we, we, say, we become almost, um, how do I say this? I shouldn't, but fundamentalists when it comes mm -hmm. to it has to be this interpretation. But we have to realize that there's myriads of interpretations. So what happens with the cult statues is it the cult statue is it changes through time based upon the expectations and the needs of the Ephesians at that given time. But at the same time, you also have multiple perspectives in any given age, okay. if that makes sense. Yeah, so for instance, in the early days, I mean, and I don't know if this is accurate, you'll have to tell me, but I heard she was maybe first worshipped as a tree, and then I know later in the early statues, they, there are no protuberances, it's just sort of a straight torso. How, what's mm -hmm. sort of the difference in how people saw her or worshipped her then before, the, you know, before she had the many breasts or whatever we want to identify the protuberances as? Well, what's going to happen, it's a rather complicated uh, process, but don't worry, uh, we'll make it easy. Uh, sure, what sure. happens <laughs> is, is, is that the, the cult of Artemis of the Ephesians, you have that which is a tree cult. Um, it's either an oak tree or a ligos tree. And, uh, and the story is, of course, the Amazon set it up and there's an image below that was Artemis and it was a wooden image. And... Um, and it was venerated in that sense. However, having said that, I'll give a little pause here. My friend Anton Bammer, who's 
the archaeologist that uh, has been working on the Temple of Artemis since uh, the 1960s. Uh, he looks like Albert Einstein, a wonderful, wonderful Austrian. Anyway, he excavated below the temple. He found not the wooden statue itself because it had rotted away, but he did indeed find that was what was hanging around the neck of the statue, which were amber beads and uh, protuberant-like pieces that hearkened to the later statue. Does that make sense? Hmm. So there still is that echo even in the earliest statue. But mm. it, it is still, it is a tree cult. But then what's going to happen is that nearby, nearby there's a mountain known as Mount Pion in Ephesus, and it was dedicated to the great mother, the great Phrygian mother. And what's going to happen is the tree cult by the future site of the, of the, of the um, Temple of Artemis and the mountain cult dedicated to Kibli, they will combine together. Uh, and, and, and as a result, Artemis will become uh, a tree in a, in, a, in, a, in a mountain sense, sacred. Uh, and then what will happen is, is that the Greeks themselves uh, will settle by the Temple of Artemis, and they will establish a temple dedicated to Artemis, who is the virgin. And it's going to be directly next to a temple dedicated to the Great Mother. A guy by the name of Croesus will tear down both temples, the temple that was set up by the Greek colonists dedicated to the virgin goddess. And he will tear down, of course, the indigenous temple dedicated to the Great Mother. And as a result, Artemis will become known as the Great Virgin Mother. The new tricks, and of course, you can already see where a personalized aspect will come involved uh, in in connection to its breast-like, globular uh, kinds of formations. Do you see how that works? Mm-hmm, and then, of mm-hmm. course, it will continue to evolve from there. So does that history that you just described, does that have something to do with why the Artemis of Ephesus is kind of a different essence or a different flavor from the Artemis in Greece? Yes, absolutely, because what will happen is is that by the very fact that uh, the indigenous Anatolian goddess will directly mix with the, uh, the, the, the Greek goddess of the moon and hunt, uh, yes, it, they will mix together, and, um, and as a result, it will be a, a, a balance between both. Having said that, I want to mention one other aspect. People don't realize that much of Ephesian history is connected with Egypt. Uh, uh, The the Ptolemies, for a period of time, uh, actually possessed the city of Ephesus to the point where they even issued coins, coins uh, that uh, together between Alexandria and Ephesus were depicted depicted, um, Serapis next to uh, Artemis in the sense of Isis. And so many of the personal aspects of Isis actually sink into the identity of, of Artemis at that point. So, so Artemis was not only a goddess that's connected to the great Anatolian mother, or Kibbele, but she will take under her mantle, obviously, the great virgin, uh, moon and hunt of the Greeks, and then she will also include beneath her mantle, so to speak, aspects of Isis, 
and Demeter, and, of all things, Hecate. Uh, and that's a very big aspect of Artemis of the Ephesians. So uh, all these goddesses, so to speak, get wrapped up under her, and then she becomes viewed as a universal goddess, so to speak, by many of her worshippers. So so how important would you say the cult of Artemis uh was in Ephesian times was it it, it was it an important or was it a minor belief system Oh uh, that's a good question uh it was extremely important uh to the point where I guess the best way to put this is that uh it even gets a reference uh in the Bible uh, there is a there is a scene in Acts chapter 19 with Demetrius the silversmith. Uh, he had instigated a riot uh, in protest uh, against everybody's favorite apostle Paul. <coughs> Sorry. And uh, and what happens is that uh, is is Paul is challenging uh, him uh, and his trade, and that trade, of course, is making silver images dedicated to artists to, to Artemis. So he feels that his his trade is is at stake because Paul is preaching this new god. What I find is interesting is is that in the Bible it says, let's see if I can find it here. Oh, here it is. Um, it says he declares, uh, and there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be scorned, and she will be deprived of her majesty that brought all Asia and the world to worship her, unquote. Now, that's an interesting reference because it's, it's in a sense, in, it's incorporated uh, in the, the New Testament, and it almost seems to be an affirmation from a rather hostile source, so to speak, of her popularity. But, it's, right. but she's also declared as the universal goddess above all, not only of inscriptions from Ephesus, but even people like Pausanias and others. The problem is, is that Artemis is so popularly worshipped by the common person. And the common person does not write that much. Many of them are illiterate. The literati, of course, uh, many of those individuals were, were interested in the cult of Isis. So while we have more written about Isis in the sense of Greek and Roman literature, by the way, not to be confused with inscriptions, you'll find more actual physical evidence of the cult of Artemis outside that of Egypt, of course, because obviously Isis is always number one in Egypt. You'll find more evidence of the cult of Artemis to the Ephesians outside of Egypt than you do of Isis. You know, so you'll find cult images of Artemis uh, in England. Uh, you'll find uh, a cult, uh, you know, you'll find cult statues in Germania or on the Black Sea. Uh, you'll find it, you know, it's, you'll even find it in the, the Sahara Desert. You'll find it everywhere. So wow. it's very, it's a very pronounced cult and belief system. It really uh, is uh, pronounced. In fact, uh, there was a very active cult in what is now Marseille, France. And even uh, Rome uh, had a temple dedicated to Artemis of the Ephesians. Most people don't know that. Hmm. So, um, okay, so... so this is probably a crazy question, but I'm thinking about how 
um, and and I, and I might even have my history wrong here. So, <laughs> um, you know, it didn't. It wasn't there something about the Romans wanted um, Cabelli to, uh, you know, be brought to Rome so that you know their city wouldn't fall? Does that aspect of Cabelli have anything to do uh, with Artemis in the least, or is that totally totally separate? Um, the answer to that question. Uh, would be like, uh, well, is there an aspect of Cabelli, the Phrygian mountain mother, is there an aspect of that within the Artemisian cult? And if, obviously the answer is yes, because Mount Pion, that one holy mountain in Ephesus, was dedicated to her according to inscriptions right on the mountain. But uh, having said that, the form of Cabelli that goes into Rome, it, it still, it had a uh, it had evolved its own way over years, and so the rituals and the perspectives and beliefs are quite different. Okay, still so that's the same. More, yeah. So Cabelli yeah, so is, is herself as a okay. I, I okay. Well, now you know, talking about deciphering the Artemis belief system, does it help us at all understand you know more about the Greeks and Romans? Yes. Uh, you see. What happens is it's because the, the cult of Artemis Ephesia was so important to uh, so many. Uh, the question is to ask why it was this way. Uh, what made the cult of Artemis Ephesia um, so important to many? I mean, what is it? Uh, what, what kind of questions did it answer? Uh, what kind of needs did it meet? Uh, uh, what kind of day-to-day -day life answers did it offer each individual and and why was it so satisfying to so many so absolutely in fact we must realize that the the cult of artemis of the ephesians um was very personal uh, she was a personal goddess uh, especially by the roman era uh, personal worship of, of artemis ephesia was of course uh through the veneration of the image of artemis which oftentimes was placed into a household niche uh, and, of course, through the uh, involvement in the public celebrations and, and, and rituals and, and, and through participation in her magical cult. Uh, and in fact, there's aspects of, a, of the cult of Artemis of the Ephesians that actually goes into what's called the Chaldean Oracles. And, of course, there was a mystery cult that was involved with her, too. You see, Artemis was not a reluctant goddess. Uh, she always tended to aid those in need. Uh, and to the point uh, where they viewed her as their special lady. Uh, they called her a good listener. In fact, they gave her the epithet epicus, you know, which means she who is the one who listens. Uh, she hears prayers. There's this general feeling that she does care. In fact, to the point where, where Artemis is said to wipe away your tears if you're sad. You know, you know mm -hmm. she's there to... So there's this personal aspect that seems to be unique. Uh, they call her uh, Our Lady Artemis, uh, oftentimes, and uh, and and she, and of course, in celebration, they call her Savior, oftentimes as well. Uh, and that's of hmm. course that's another aspect that's important. In fact, people used to go up to one another, and they would put their hand to their heart, and they would say, "In Artemis," to one another. So there's a genuine feeling of love. I do want to mention one more thing, and that is, is Artemis of the Ephesians was viewed 
uh, as the nutrix. You know, in a sense, she is the one who who breastfeeds us upon her her special milk that, that, that vitalizes us, that gives us life, that gives fertility to the fields, and that that also helps women uh, in labor and, of course, in birth and so forth. But I also found inscriptions where the Ephesians also describe themselves as the nutrix of Artemis, that they also, in a sense, feed her back through their love and devotion. This is unusual for ancient times. Hmm. So there wasn't that um, there wasn't that reciprocity. But, you know, the, the ancients didn't think that way. Well, they did. Uh, they, you know, the point is, is that what's different about the cult of Artemis of the Ephesians? Sure, there's an aspect that if if we do for you, you you know she'll do for for you back. You know, there's still that contract agreement back and forth. But what I'm trying to say is is unlike many of the other belief systems in the Greco-Roman world, not all, because Isis was also very personal, but there seems to be this relationship of give and take between both. So it's a, okay. it's a personal thing. It's a, it's a devotion where, where they get excited about it. And, and it's to the point where, uh, in many ways, uh, if you're an Ephesian, you automatically think of yourself as devoted to Artemis. Ephesus and Artemis were one. So city spirit, patriotism, uh, was wrapped up in your love and devotion to the goddess to, to almost an extreme pitch, and that's what made it so unique. Yes, of course, uh, in Athens, uh, the Athenians loved Athena, and in, yes, and of course, in these other cities, they loved their goddess. But there's something unusual going on with Artemis of the Ephesians because not only is she tied in with that general feeling of, 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 of love and, 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 and dedication, but also within her mantle, beneath her skirt, so to speak, she has wrapped up so many of the other goddesses from nearby places that, that the Ephesians started the view that their goddess was not just for them, but for the world as well. So, is, so she's considered a universal goddess. Um, yes. It, 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 is that because she was beloved by so many people or because she sort of oversaw and, uh, you know, so many areas of life or both? Well, the, the answer is, is that Artemis, because she had acquired so many different attributes under herself via the acquisition of these various goddesses, uh, having uh, aspects of, of Kibli in her, uh, having aspects of the Greek virgin uh, goddess in her, uh, having aspects of Isis in her, having aspects of Demeter, having aspects of Hecate in her. Because she has assumed so many, uh, she was viewed as being uh, in charge of a multiplicity of areas uh, that, uh, and concerns. She's kind of became the catch-all. And at the same time, that means that why, why pray to this goddess or that god when we can get it all if we just devote ourselves to Artemis? <laughs> At the same time, I do want to I do want to mention one other aspect, and that's because she also was the one who's connected to the Ephesian letters, which were considered the most magical words in ancient times. So not only do you get an all-encompassing goddess that uh, you know that has all these different areas of concern, but she's tied to uh, a a, um, a, a, a a these these magical words that were considered the most magical. Who says so? The Greeks and Romans themselves. 
and even early Christians say so too. Uh, Clement of, of, of Alexandria, for example, and Hippolytus of Rome. So uh, there's, there's a myriad of, of, of witnesses that say that, uh, that these words were essentially powerful and they're connected to Artemis. Well, and for those people who are planning to come to your ritual on the 28th at the Goddess Temple, uh, they're going to the people in that ritual are going to be using those Ephesian letters quite a lot. Isn't that right? That's correct. Uh, now, because I do have to say that, yeah, what's going to happen, I know this is going to happen. <laughs> your listeners out there are going to uh, type in and you're going to Google Ephesian letters and uh, it'll come right up, and you'll, everything that I just mentioned, that will be true. You'll say, oh, yeah, it really was considered the most powerful words in the Greco-Roman world. It says it right there. But before, uh, but we're doing more than the Wikipedia situation here. Because what happens is this, is that we not only, uh, you have the standard Ephesian letters, but what I published is not just the standard Ephesian letters. What I did is, uh, through connections with the Getty and other academic institutions, I found the earlier versions of these words that you will never find online. Uh, these words, uh, uh, one set of these uh, Ephesian letters uh, hasn't been published until right now in this book. So what I'm going to do is, is at this ritual, we're going to reveal that set of words as well. So it makes it a little bit more special. Well, you know, it, it's been, I, I remember when I first heard you talk about the Ephesian letters, I went online trying to find them. It wasn't that easy to find them online either, and to also understand how they're, they're spoken, which is also uh, Im, important too. Um, but, but these Ephesian letters, they were used in all different sorts of ways, weren't they? Did you want to maybe talk about that a little bit? I remember reading something sure. about gladi gladiators would use them. I mean, they were yep. sort of like a multi multi-purpose amulet, almost. Yes, yes. So, so you'll have you'll have uh, the Ephesian letters that will be inscribed on an amulet that was placed on an athlete, and uh, one particular occasion, and as a result of the Ephesian letters, uh, he was able to beat out the competition. Uh, there is another use of the Ephesian letters, and that is uh, they are connected to the idea of warding away evil spirits. And so when you get married, uh, the priest, uh, what he does is he walks around the soon-to-be-betrothed uh, couple. He walks clockwise around the couple saying the Ephesian letters. And these letters, at this point, they're believed to ward off evil spirits, but at the same time bring in fertility spirits so that the marriage would be blessed. And then, of course, you have other contexts where the Ephesian letters were used to ward away a plague. And illnesses and the Ephesian letters were used uh, for invocation, so that uh, you say these words and Artemis, the Ephesian, supposedly, according to many, appear before you. And of course, she's known as the one who is uh, the Epiphanius, the one who appears. And in fact, the Ephesian letters was also used for the mystery cult that is tied to uh, this belief system. And the Ephesian letters were then said as you go uh, into the underworld and you rise back up as a new creature uh, in her and in Artemis. Mm -hmm. So, yes, the Ephesian letters are, are used in all these kinds of contexts. In fact, I even found the Ephesian letters being used against, get this, a goat that's, uh, that's eating too much 
of the grass around the person's property. <laughs> well, it's, well, it's yeah. probably a good time to talk about how uh, how powerful her magic was seen uh, in the ancient world. I mean, well, first of all, let me, and, and I want you to talk about that, but get, let, give me a minute to tell listeners how incredible your book is because listeners you know i you know i have my own books i get books of people who come on my show you know for the last 8 years this book of dr reedfeld is heads above anything i have seen in the last 8 years that i have been doing the show you won't find a book like james on 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 the shelf i mean it's gorgeous it's like a piece of art you have color plates in it and lots of them um it's beautiful you have the the end notes in blue you have the captions under pictures in green and i mean i know that's all visual stuff but you worked on this book for 10 years and you have a lot of stuff in here that's never been published before isn't that right yes it is and um a lot of the information uh, comes as a result. Uh, I have spent up to uh, over uh, various periods of time. I have spent up to eight months studying and doing research in Ephesus with uh, the other archaeologists. And so, and as a result, I have walked these places. I have uh, seen these inscriptions personally. <laughs> I've even walked around and with other archaeologists, we've uncovered these materials, and I kind of beat them to them in some cases in publishing things. So. The answer to the question is yes, you're going to find a lot of stuff that's not published at all. Or if it's published, uh, it's, in, it's, it's in some archive somewhere that you'll never have access to. I did a lot so... Yes. Or, or in another language. Yeah, in, in fact, uh, uh, the majority of my sources, if they were not in ancient Greek, actually were in German, uh, the Austrians. Uh, they have published so much. So this is really a first, even in the English-speaking world, of information that even the Austrians and the Germans take for granted that people may know. Uh, if you're an English speaker, <laughs> then, uh, then you're going to find stuff. You're going, wait a minute, how come they're not telling us this? I'm going I'm to give you an illustration. I really want to do this. And it's still that way at Ephesus to this day. You will go up to a particular site and in, along the, the Via Sacra and... In English, it will say Temple of Hadrian. And you're thinking, oh, it's a Temple of Hadrian. On the very same plaque, in German as well as in Turkish, it will say the Temple, so it will say the Sanctuary of Artemis and Hadrian. <laughs> so for English speakers, even going to Ephesus, <laughs> they're not given the benefit of their true names even. So, uh, yes, uh, yeah. what I that's do is I cut through all the politics. That's unfortunate. That's unfortunate, but that's the case. Well, but that's the perfect reason why folks should come with me and you uh, to Turkey because you'll they'll they'll get the real deal. They they won't get some uh, you know crazy misinformation that uh, you know somebody else tells them. They'll they'll know for sure with certainty if you know they care about the spirituality, if they care about the history. Um, you'll certainly be uh, given them accurate information. Yeah, in fact, um, uh, for the tour, I got something special. I'm going to take everybody to a particular place that's in the middle of a field in Ephesus and we'll stand at a, on a particular stone and I'll say, this exact stone uh, Cicero walked on. This exact stone.
stone Julius Caesar crossed over. This exact stone Augustus was on. This exact stone, if you believe in early Christianity, uh, Paul and John, and, and we'll, be, we'll be standing at the exact spot. I mean, I'm going to be taking you to places where I go, it happened here. Nowhere else exactly here. I, I love that. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. So, <laughs> Well, you know, another thing I like about Turkey, and, um, you know, and I've said this before on the show, you know, when I've talked to listeners about the upcoming trip, is that so many of the goddess sites tourists don't even go to, and we get there, and the place is beautiful and totally empty. Now, not Ephesus, okay? Ephesus probably will have other tourists there, but so many of the sites we'll be there all alone. I mean, we can do ritual, we can explore, we can meditate, we can take in the place, do divinations, do all sorts of incredible things that you can't normally do uh, at, at, you know, in, at, at places that are overrun with hundreds or thousands of tourists. Yeah, the chances are that uh, Lagina, which has the uh, temple dedicated to Hecate that we're going to be going to, chances are there'll be nobody there. And and that's Hecate's only known standing temple on the face of the earth, I think, unless something's changed. Yeah, well, there's a few other possibilities, but that's one of the, the most prominent. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And there's going to be whirling dervishes and Turkish baths and wonderful food. What's your favorite, what's your favorite place uh, on the itinerary, James? Oh, that's a good question. Um, of, of course, uh, I, I like... Uh, Wow, that's a good question. I love uh, Aspendos. Uh, this is a perfectly preserved amphitheater, uh, you know, theater. And what had happened is that it was uh, they, they built a fortress around it, and and later on they dismantled the fortress. And there's a perfectly preserved theater that's under it. But above there is there are ruins above of an of agora, uh, that agora uh, building that's very rare. That's uh, that, that's one of my favorite places. The other place I love is Termesis. Uh, Termesis is it's an ancient city that is that is on the mountain peak, and in fact the theater straddles two sharp mountain peaks, and there's forest all the way around it. There's a temple of Artemis that's there. It's just re- really a dream. It also has one of the biggest necropolises in uh, in, in Turkey. And it goes down all the hills and so forth. And there's a gigantic wall that's so big that when Alexander the Great got to it, uh, he decided that he's not going to take the city and turned around. <laughs> so it's still standing. So this is wow. a tremendous sight. Well, and I'm thinking, you know, when we're in these theaters with the, with the incredible uh, acoustics of ancient times, can you imagine when the group gets together and does a ma chant or does some goddess chants? Uh, it, I mean, it'll just reverberate. I mean, I'm getting, you know, a hair standing on, you know, goosebumps just thinking about it. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and of course, yeah, go ahead. Well, I, no, no, finish. Finish about Turkey. No, I was going to say that at Termesis, uh, when you go into the Temple of Artemis, the podium is still there where the statue used to stand. Oh, wow. Wow, wow. <laughs> sounds sounds like the perfect place to do a ritual. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and, and also, too, I mean, for people, maybe they haven't, you know, these places we've talked about don't sound familiar. We will be going to Troy. Everybody's heard of Troy and Istanbul uh, and incredible museums. So, um, you know, this would really be a trip of a lifetime. You know, it would be something 
you would remember the rest of your life. And uh, I know the first time I left the United States, I traveled to Egypt and England in one trip. And i got to be honest, I didn't have the money. I put it on a credit card. And I paid for it for the next two years, and I never regretted it uh, a moment because it was the beginning of all of my travels. You know, sometimes you just have to take the plunge. But, um, but James, getting back, <clears throat> getting back to Artemis and, um, and the cult, um, tell me why it was important in understanding the role of women during that time. Okay. Well, what's, what's going to happen here uh, is, is that I think that we, we have this misunderstanding about women in ancient times within even ritual contexts. Basically, by, base, uh, by examining this belief system, we really can recapture the female voice once again. I mean, really, we can. Uh, we have, and it's, of course, it's in my book, we have hymns written by women, and we realize in the cult of Artemis of the Ephesians, women did play vital, important roles that were sometimes even above that of men within certain contexts. But what I find is so interesting is that some of these positions, like Pertain, who's, who's, who's you know, the administrator for that one year during the cult around the Pertanium, uh, these are elected positions, although you have to have the right amount of money. But what I have to say is they're elected, and there's men elected these women to be over them uh, as an officiator. That is unusual. And so we're going to have tons of names of women again. That's extent throughout the book. So you'll have Claudia Trophime, or you'll have a you'll have a, a, a Vidia Marcia, and you'll have you know all these these names of women in prominent positions doing important activities. And I think what this does is it really changes things. We also realize uh, by studying the cult that Artemis was particularly involved with maidens. Uh, because the, the goddess herself was also considered a, a virgin or, or a maiden. Could you go so far as to say that it was an egalitarian cult? Um, the answer to that question is, is, is that when it comes to the cult itself, the answer is absolutely yes. That's unusual. Yes. You have, you have as many men sorry, as many women as men in officiating positions. And you'll have women doing the same jobs as men in, in cultic contexts, yes. Uh, but then again, we have to remember that the cult of Artemis of the Ephesians is in Asia Minor. I think we have this misunderstanding that if it's Greek, it's going to be patriarchal immediately. But that's mainland Greece. Asia Minor, which is, of course, Turkey today, uh, always had this deep-seated sense of an egalitarian conception. You have Shatohuyak and these other very strong goddess sites to the point where mostly goddesses were worshipped uh, at, uh, in, in Anatolia. And then the, when the patriarchal uh, Hittites, these Indo-European Hittites, came down, came down south uh, and they, they came to Anatolia, what turns out is they, they mixed with them and they became just kind of egalitarian, kind of just panned out, so to speak. So... So the cult of Artemis of the Ephesians, I'm going to say this over and over again, is not really Greek. <laughs> it's yeah. not Greek. And as a result, you're going to have women in high positions throughout the cult uh, in positions that normally would not be in other so-called Greek cults in the mainland. Mm 
Well, I, I think that must have been where uh, where where my past lives were were spent. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so the cult of Artemis also um, is important in the development of Christianity too for our our Christian friends or our Mary friends out there. Yes. Uh, now, now, what I have to say is, is that is understanding uh, what the beliefs related to Artemis Ephesia really helps us also understand, uh, you know, in comparison to the beliefs of early Christianity. Uh, in a sense, we, we, we have evidence of what Christians felt towards the cult of Artemis of the Ephesians, uh, starting from the first century and the second centuries. We can chart uh, out the gradual shifts in Christianity as it moves from toleration. Believe it or not, it's still more tolerant in the first and second centuries. But the, the toleration starts to end around the 3rd century, and then by the 4th century, there's downright persecution. So, so by tracking, uh, those who deem Christianity uh, should return to its roots, uh, they will realize that uh, they would then uh, have to not only be tolerant of the cult of Artemis Ephesia, but any system that believes differently from themselves, such as Islam or Hinduism. So the cult of Artemis Ephesia never imposed itself on Christians, for two centuries, and Christians did not do the same. The cult of Artemis Ephesia then acts as a corrective to Christianity and how far off it had uh, moved in later centuries. So this is, this is very important to remember. It's that the cult of Artemis Ephesia is almost like a measuring stick to see how Christianity has changed. So it was very tolerant. The two did get along for the first two centuries. So when when do we have Christianity obliterating Artemis? It doesn't happen until natural forces start to attack her left and right. Uh, you have, uh, during the 250s and 260s, uh, even before this time, you'll have plagues and famines, and, and the temple part is partly destroyed by the Goths, believe it or not. And at this point, when Artemis... Ephesia is looked at as being a failure, didn't help them during these, these terrible times. It is at this moment that uh, Christians took the opportunity to uh, avail themselves as they're the option to go to instead of her. And that was kind of mm -hmm. what happened. But what, what actually later on, uh, it was the, the rise of Christianity at the moment where religion and politics came together as one. Uh, persecution of the cult of Artemis of the Ephesians happened uh, the moment uh, during the, the fourth century when Christianity uh, became uh, an accepted belief system within the, under the mantle of the uh, of the uh, Pontifex Maximus of the of the imperial regime, starting with Constantine, but it wasn't really so bad then. But then by the time you get to Theodosius. Uh, in 391, 392, and he's making his edicts against the, uh, paganism, at that point, the, the cult of Artemis of the Ephesians was doomed. And I so this is where we find people bearing uh, the, the, the statues of Artemis of Ephesians in a very careful way uh, so that nobody will destroy them. And, but, but now she, in a sense, though, doesn't she sort of live on in the cult of the Virgin Mary? Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and I'll give a Cliff Notes version of this one since we already kind of talked about it. Uh, what had happened, as I mentioned before, is you had the the cult of the um, 
uh, of the indigenous Anatolian uh, mother, and you had the cult of of the virgin goddess, uh, the, the 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 Greek uh, virgin goddess of the moon and hunts. And I told you that they got combined together, and by around 500 BCE, Artemis was already being called the great virgin mother, you know, and also starting to be called later on queen of heaven uh, and queen of the seas and all these other kinds of names. And she starts getting depicted with a, with a veil and so forth. Now, this is all, you know, 500 years before Christianity. Well, there is this rather horrible kind of misunderstanding or accident. And the accident is, is that according to the Bible, uh, Jesus looked down uh, at, uh, at John and told him, behold your mother, in reference to, of course, Mary, his own mother. And the legend is, or the story is, wherever Mary, sorry, wherever John went, wherever the apostle John went, Mary went also. But we know for a fact that John ended up in Ephesus. Well, this is a problem, because, because many of them will say, well, Mary obviously then went to Ephesus. So here is Mary supposedly coming, uh, who is the great uh, virgin mother, coming to a city that's dedicated to, well, guess what, the great virgin mother. And for the more simplistic types who, who are not nuanced or great theologians, they can't really tell the difference. And so <laughs> the two kind of ideas start blending together by the 300s uh, CE. The ideas come together. Now, probably Mary was really, um, probably was, uh, died and was, was buried in Jerusalem. But the legend itself started to develop that Mary went to Ephesus. And so gradually, the cult aspects of Artemis of the Ephesians and uh, stars emerge on with Mary uh, to the point where in 431, at the Council of Ephesus, there was a great decision to be made. Uh, is uh, is uh, Mary the mother of Christ or is she the mother of God? Well, uh, the problem is is that uh, uh, Cyril of Alexandria decided he's going to choose Ephesus as the place to have this meeting, knowing the people misunderstand the concepts and be all in favor of Mary being mother of God. And at that point, at the Third Ecumenical Council in 431, really, you have a cult of the Virgin Mother, and uh, of course, the, much of the cult of Artemis Ephesia kind of, kind of married together. And finally, I want to say that uh, it, it is that on the site of the Temple of Artemis, my friends, the archaeologists at Ephesus, they even covered that when the temple was destroyed, they actually built a church dedicated to the Virgin Mother right on the same spot. Well, and, and I, I'm, I'm, I, I, my brain is a little bit foggy, but I seem to recall, I mean, I know in Turkey there's the House of Mary, but in, yes. is, in Ephesus, don't they, don't they tend to point to a spot and say either this is where Mary lived or this is where Mary's buried? Um, it, it, yes, or, or am I remembering wrong? No, but the House of Mary, which is considered a sacred pilgrimage spot to most Catholics, uh, is in Ephesus. And it's located just above the Ortega Gardens. The Ortega Gardens, where legend has it, Leto gave birth to Artemis and Apollo. And so, so which is another mother uh, giving birth. So, yes, uh, the answer to the question is, is, uh, is alongside a sacred spot to, uh, to Artemis of the Ephesians. 
there will become a sacred spot dedicated to Mary. Her house is believed to be uh, located there where she lived. Uh, there seems to be first century foundations, and the story goes, is that she assumed into heaven from there. Ah, okay. Well, James, we have like about four minutes left, and I know you have a talk at 8 o'clock. Do you have time for one more question, or do you have to run? Sure. Uh, final question. Um, can you, and if, if it's not too detailed an answer, uh, and, and you have time for it, can you provide uh, details about how the Ephesians actually worshipped Artemis? Well, well, first of all, I mean, uh, one aspect is processions. They, they, they had weekly processions with the cult statue along the sacred road known as the Via Sacra. And this, this road went from, the, uh, from the, the temple and it went to ancient Mount Pion and then it went from there uh, to out to the Ortigia Gardens, as I mentioned, where Leto gave birth to, to, uh, to Artemis and Apollo. And then the road doubled back, uh, went by the theater around Mount Pion and back to the... Um, uh, back to the temple again, and it was believed that this sacred route uh, w- was an energy connector. It connected the energy of the Temple of Artemis to the mountain, to the garden, but also the city itself. There's a story when the Temple of Artemis was uh, was almost about to be destroyed. Oh, actually, I should say, sorry, a story that the city of Ephesus was about to be destroyed. What they did is they tied a rope around the front pillars of the Temple of Artemis and tied the rope all the way to the city walls, and the city was saved. So the Ephesians believed that, therefore, the power of the temple uh, can connect to the city via a, a avenue, via a, a rope. And so the sacred way was created to be a symbolic version of that rope. So processions were big. Uh, sacrifices, of course, were, were central to the cult. Uh, we know that... Uh, that they, they, um, uh, uh, there's basically 365 sacrifices uh, uh, each year, which is every single day, and that, the, uh, that the 175 of these sacrifices were Olympian sacrifices where they burned, sorry, where, the, where everybody shared the animal, and the other remaining ones, they were Catholic sacrifices. But uh, we, we know that um, uh, beyond um, the processions and uh, beyond, of course, the rituals, they had a very active mystery cult. They also had various holidays uh, that uh, were popular. There's, there's even a holiday called the Feast of Artemis Datus, which was connected to, uh, to uh, uh, teenagers, uh, celebrated by them in connection to Artemis of the Ephesians. Uh, it's kind of hard to say. There's so many areas where, where Artemis was involved in every single day life. The idea I want you to get is that, is that in many ways, you know how Hinduism uh, is a daily way of life. It's a daily sacred uh, philosophy of how one should live. That's exactly the same way the cult of Artemis of the Ephesians was. It was in everybody's everyday life. They had altars dedicated to her all throughout the city. You had your, her dedicated an altar within your own household. There's certain foods that you ate that were connected to her, certain foods you didn't eat because she didn't like you to eat those kinds of foods. And, you know, you had certain provisions. Uh, it was involved with your, your, your marriage, so to speak. There's one, I, I'm going to close with this one ritual that would be kind of fun, and that is this. When you get married, <laughs> you see how Artemis of the Ephesians is connected to 
virgins uh, in many ways and those before marriage. But uh, what happens when you get married? We can't look like that you uh, that, that Artemis is going to let go of you so easily. So there was a ritual where before you get married, the, the bride-to-be is supposed to run away as fast as she can from the groom heading straight for the Temple of Artemis. And the, the challenge is that he needs to chase after her and grab her, <laughs> tackle her to the ground, in a sense. It's all for fun, of course. And that way he has her. Because the idea is that, is that the due honor to Artemis is to show that uh, you don't want to give up your chastity so easily. Make it a challenge for the man. In some cases, the, 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 the lady uh, got up to the, the actual uh, front uh, pillars of the Temple of Artemis, and he's like stuck, like trying to pull her off. But like I said, it was all in fun. <laughs> That's funny. Well, James, yeah. tell listeners where they can find your book. Uh, you can find my book on Amazon. All you do is you put in my name, James Rietveld, R-I-E-T-V-E-L-D. That's R-I-E-T. V as a victory, E-L-D. You put that on Amazon search, James Reedsfeld. You can type in Artemis, but uh, it will come up immediately. And there it is. In fact, it's on sale right now for half price. Yeah, yeah, honestly, uh, I would recommend listeners go get that book right away because this is a 60 or a $70 book that for now yes, is. is on sale for about $35. Like I said before, color plates, Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful book. Uh, you definitely 410 want pages. To, yeah, 410 pages. A, a lot of unpublished, unpublished stuff in this book. Well, James, thank you so very much for all the information tonight. I am looking forward to uh, your talk in Venice Saturday and the ritual on the 28th down in Irvine. And uh, if anyone's interested in where else James is going to be giving talks, um, you can get in touch with me and I'll put you in touch with him because he's giving a lot of talks in the L.A. area. You might want to get your book directly from him and have him sign it for you. <laughs> I like that idea. Yeah. So listen, have a great talk tonight. Uh, thank you so, thank much, you so much for uh, being on the show. It was a wonderful uh, interview, and uh, I will see you Saturday at the Venice Library for your next talk. I really look forward to it. See you then, Karen. Okay. Okay, thanks, James. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Well, that about uh, does it for uh, the interview with James tonight. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And I see our resident astrologer is on the switchboard, and I want to thank her for her patience as we wrapped up that uh, uh, important interview. So, Kathy, welcome to the show. Hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for your patience. I know you were hanging there for a little bit longer than maybe you wanted to. Um, no, but, not uh, at all. It was it was such an interesting interview. Oh well, thank you. Thank you so it much. It's such a good interview that I that I of course I always love listening, and I want to compliment you on your interview. It was discerning, and you know the one that was um, for International Women's Day and the Goddess that was on Huffington Post. Most excellent. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. You know, I forgot to even mention that. I should tell my listeners. Um, they tell can your go listeners. To my... Go for it. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, either go to my Facebook page and scroll down a little bit. You'll see that Rosie the Riveter graphic, which I didn't choose, by the way. Uh, but uh, but there's a, a link there to the interview that I did for the Huffington Post about uh, the Dalai Lama's comment, uh, Will Western Women Save the World?, uh, and we, you know, in the interviews is, is, you know, more than just that. You know, we get into, uh, you know, why uh, goddess spirituality uh, is really the thing that, uh, uh, you know, will sort of set us free and could potentially save the planet and save the species and all of us on it. So thank you for bringing that up, Kathy. And it was nice of you to put those comments there as well. It's It's so nice to have support from the community. Well, you know, it's so wonderful to see that even that um the collective consciousness is even open to us speaking about the goddess. True. True. That's you why know, I have it there. Because on the religion section I never see I I rarely see pagans or goddess interviews or or yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that's why it's so important, if if listeners don't mind, go look for the article, like it, share it, comment on it, because if I, I think if subjects like this uh, get a lot of attention, we will see more of subjects like this on mainstream media, like uh, you know, like the Huffington Post. Um, yeah, and uh, and and you notice there were as many men who commented. Uh, favorably as there were women, and I think uh, I, I, I was really glad about that as well. Yes, I was too. So, um, good for them. When One I second, opened, I'm just fixing the phone. Yes? Uh, are you is you're this there? better? Um, yeah, is this better? Yes, I think it is. I think it is. Okay, I need um, it to put I, on my headphones. At the uh, at the beginning of the show, I told folks that you were coming on, and it was kind of a crucial time. Um, I know uh, on the 17th, um, Uranus and Pluto are going to square, and I'd been reading some stuff online about, uh, uh, you know, this this you know, be careful, be careful uh, around the 17th. So so tell us what's uh, what's ahead for us in the coming weeks, Kathy. Okay, well these next few weeks are very intense. So yeah, I think that the more that we can go into our calm energy and sit in our heart, the better it will be for ourselves and the world. Tomorrow, Mars, the planet of activity and aggression and anger, but also just our ability to have desires and to want things and to grapple with things, is going to meet up with Uranus and Aries. So Uranus, and Aries, Uranus has been in Aries now for the last two years or so. And this is the energy of we need, you know, Uranus says, wake up, and Aries says, who am I? So Aries is all about, what do I want to do with this primal fire that I have? Um, and so Uranus is telling us to wake up to our, I think, our original birth plan, let's say, our original um blueprint of what our soul wants to do and Mars can be there to pick up on it and say okay let's go um, but it, if you're more unconscious it can cause sudden accidents you know because you're going along Mars you can just be going along on the you know driving along thinking about things being upset driving fast whatever and then out of the blue you know something can come crashing into you um, sudden surprises they say come up too but I think if we wanted to use it in the most powerful sense, it's sort of like 
it's time for us to take seriously that the the, the earth is is hurting, is sick, and of course the earth will take care of herself, as we've said many times. But if we want to survive, it's really time for us to to change the story, and that's going to come later on in another week with the solar eclipse right before the um, the spring equinox. So. Um, so anyway, just to come back to tomorrow, everybody just be calm tomorrow because after it connects, with, um, Mars connects with um, Uranus, it squares or is challenged by um, Pluto. And Pluto in, in um, Capricorn can be the authorities, if you will, um, doing a power trip on you. So, you know, if you're driving fast and the cockpit pulls up behind you, do not speed away. You know, but also be safe. You just... You know, it's one of those times when it really depends on what's inside us. I think we're really at that tipping point where we're going to attract the energies that we put out. So it's so it's really important, like you said, stay calm, stay focused, don't overreact, uh, be proactive rather than reactive. Yes, beautifully put. You see, because so now you said a lot tomorrow. Going on. Well, well, but well, let me clarify this. You said something about tomorrow, but I thought the hot button day was the seventeenth. Is it both, so or 15th. is it is it both. tomorrow? No, it's both. Okay. Um, Mars is Mars is a personal planet. Uranus and Pluto, we call them collective planets. They're for everybody. Okay. So when a personal planet um, hooks up with these outer planets that are more that are more collective it means we start to take it personally, right? Mm-hmm. So tomorrow, Mars is uh, is getting to them. They're getting closer and closer. By next Monday, the 16th, it's the 16th, Pluto and, and Uranus will be exactly, exactly, exactly square. But they're so close right now. So Mars comes along tomorrow and sort of sets it resonating. And then Monday will be the 7th and last, Square between these two planets from the 60s that were so revolutionary. And it's the first time that both of them are going in forward motion. So to me, the, the story that comes out of that is seven represent, is a spiritual number. And to me, it means conscious choice. Okay, when you get to seven, it's test. The initiation is how are you going to use your power, number eight. So conscious choice. What's your fantasy? What's your goal? What, you know, where are we going with this? So, um, so on Monday, yes, that's the last one. But you know, you always look at the that energy is so big; it's already happening now, and it will happen into the next two weeks, and okay. then of course reverberate through the next three years, three or four years. It will, you know, we'll be feeling that energy for a while. But tomorrow okay. sets it off with Mars. You know, I, I so, wonder. You, you know, all of the stuff that's been in the news with the crazy Republicans writing the letter to Iran, you know, trying to screw up this peace deal that you uh, know Obama's trying to do, um, ISIL uh, bulldozing Nineveh. Um, is can, I mean, can we see that as symptoms of what's happening? You know, in in the cosmos. I think so. It's a reaction. You know, entropy. It's the whole idea of the sunset effect. As the old has to die, it reacts. It strikes back. It doesn't want to go. But what yeah. it's doing is it's showing us the utter stupidity, greediness, nastiness, and cruelty that they're, that who, who they really are. So in a way, 
know, more and more people are going to go, who are these guys and why are they leading us rather than the small group that's known for a while that we're on a bad course. Because it's so overt now. They think they're acting on their principles, but what they're really doing is going so against the grain of life because they need to die. That uh, that whole mindset needs to die. Yeah. And and that whole idea of power over and domination, we need to have the goddess come back. You know, we know this. But now I think more and more people are going to know it because, you know, like that, inviting the Israeli prime minister to come talk to our Congress, it's like he's not a, we didn't elect him. They listened to him more than they listened to us. You know, well, every time you get a hold of your senator or congressman, they don't talk to me. I, well, I know, and it was so crazy. You know, I saw a video clip of Netanyahu talking about um, Iraq before we invaded Iraq, and he was saying all the same stuff, um, all the same lies, all the same mistakes that the whole Bush administration did. And, you know, it, it is just like, you know, why hasn't the people associated with the Bush administration been discredited? You know, the Rumsfeld, the Cheneys, right. you know, all all of those advisors. Um, because, and Netanyahu could have just as well have been part of the team. He was saying all the same stuff that turned out not to be true. You, you know, so yeah. it's like, why why listen to these people who are proven um, you know, who are, who are proven not to know what they're talking about. Right. But you see, that's, in a way, the beauty of this last, that sunset effect. It comes back in a roar, because it's like, you're not going to kill me off. But all of the darkest, stupidest, dirtiest, shadowy parts of it are, are right there to be seen. And so hopefully more people will be upset that things like this are going on and that um, things aren't getting done in the world. More people will get a, will see it. Um, yeah. We can only keep telling the stories, you and me and other people who are out teaching people about the goddess and, and about what's going on in the world and Marianne Williamson and all, you know, all the great people that are out there. But now it needs to spread out more and more. It's almost like we need to... You know, Jesus said we um, that the his disciples were like the yeast in um, in the in the flour, and um, and you know it's sort of like now it feels like after this last square, which is next Monday. So that's tomorrow is Mars. Think of just energy. You'll either be totally energized or whacked up the head, maybe. But the week after on Monday, that's the last square, and that's. That when, that's when we begin to really have to hone our vision. And then, because, well, lots of things are going on. That's why the more calm everybody stays, the better. Saturday, Saturn goes retrograde. Saturn just dipped into Sagittarius a little. And he's starting to say, what do we believe? Are we going to stand up and form our own belief systems um, about the world? And so when, when it goes retrograde, we take that inside ourselves and we say, Okay, what do I believe? What do I, you know, what kind of, and how am I going to act on it? So that's Saturday, and then Monday is this last square, the seventh square, and then on Thursday, Thursday or Friday, um, right before um, the spring equinox on Friday the 20th, there's this total solar eclipse of the, you said the new moon is a solar eclipse. At the very last degree of Pisces, the very end of the zodiac, and it, now, you know, I tell stories, so, but 
who knows, but it feels as if it's almost like the end of the Piscean age. Oh, I hope so. You know, (laughs) wouldn't that be interesting? But it feels like the way I talk about it is we need to leave the old story behind. We need to step into the story that we are all connected. The quantum field connects us, if nothing else, Indra's net. But we need to, you know, the ones who believe, the ones who are already there, people who already are ready for it, we need to really shed the cloak of the patriarchy because all of us still hold on to it. Do you know what I mean? I'm not yeah. saying leave your job or you'll never talk to people again, but it's, we really have to step into this new belief of the world is different than we've been taught. It's not a machine that operates on certain laws and that we're not connected to the earth. We have to go to that new understanding of quantum physics which says we're an energy field. And we have to, in a way, step into that belief so deeply that the old, that thing of, oh, I can't and how and, oh, if I do this, this will happen. And, you know, the heaviness of patriarchal and Cartesian thinking, if we can really step out of that, it would, that to me is what the eclipse would be about. Okay. And this whole series of this whole series of squares, because we really, it's, people do things because of their beliefs, right? True. You know, like you look at the Christians; they want the end of the world to come, so they're trying to create it big time, especially yeah. in the Middle East. The crazy. Yeah, I right couldn't. I couldn't help but think that was behind uh the Republicans stirring up shit with Iran to tell you the truth. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think so. They they all go. I've heard that every politician goes to this breakfast at least once a week by the, the, the fellowship or the people or some very weird group of Christians that that like own every politician in the world. Every politician who comes to Washington at some point gets asked to be breakfast. And these are the groups that see, it's like not even white supremacy, it's Christian supremacy and everyone else can die. Yeah. Um, if they need to. And, you know, they've taken Christianity in such an evil, twisted way um, to yeah. what Christ said. Because basically Christ, didn't he say, guess what? I have an energy body. I'm back. Right? <laughs> and it's resurrection. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish I wish he body. would come back. I wish he would come back and take them all over his uh, over his knee and spank them really good. <laughs> Me too. And then send them to their room. But, um, you know, really his whole, the whole message, whether he lived or not, or, you know, whatever the story is that people believe, that we have lived with this story of the risen Christ. If we had only taken that image rather than the cross, what a different world we would live in. Yeah. And, um, but right now, the risen Christ in a way is the energy body, if you will, the body that's conscious of our spiritual presence and our gifts and everything. So, I don't know. I'm just thinking that this could be such a transformative time for everyone in the world. If if the critical mass of people who are ready, okay, people who have been working since the 70s on their consciousness and understanding of the world and life and want the goddess to come back and, you know, all the different, different ways that we got conscious, all of us, if we really could step into that place of enlightenment, if you will, 
and see the positive rather than only coming up against the negative. And and create that 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 new vision by actually going out and working with our communities and working and talking and the things we're doing now but on a bigger scale. Right, That's right. That's my story. We need a new story. I don't know what other people's story will be, but that would be a good story. Yeah, you know, because it's really important to remember and and I know it sounds trivial and we hear it all the time, but but really think about what we focus on, we do manifest in our life. You know, I was just talking to one of the girls in my wisdom circle um this past weekend and I and I it, and it I you know, it kind of hit me, you know, in between the eyes like a clue by four. You know, right around the time I was really doing a lot of intense work you know, talking about worker exploitation and all of that sort of stuff, that's when my boss at work was treating me the worst. And I wonder if I didn't just bring that on myself, you know? Um, Yeah. You know, because I think sometimes when, you know, we want to do the work, you know, we want to be out there, you know, changing the world, but... I, I go back to, I don't know whether it was you told me or somebody else said, don't be against something, be for something. So I'm thinking, yeah. you know, if back then I hadn't been against worker exploitation, if I had been for, you know, corporate appreciation of workers, let's say, you know what I'm saying? Yes. I, I I wonder if... I would have had, you know, those those um those anxious times with with my own boss. So, if we sort of, you know, sort of flip that and think about that in terms of everything we do, if we if we would just try to see the glasses half full, what are we for rather putting energy into what we're against? You know, what do we right. want the world to be like rather than complaining about how the world is? Um, I don't know. I think I, I think that also too is part of it. It helps shift things. I think so, because if we're for something, then we're creating a vision. We're already telling people a story, uh, and that they maybe haven't heard before. But when we're against things, we're going. We're saying your story is bad. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And so we're using judgment. Don't listen. Yeah, yeah. We're making a judgment, and people won't listen right away. Their barriers go up. Right. If you come and say, "Oh, I'm for this," they're you know you don't put the bar- they don't put their barriers up. They might not agree with you, but the more that you talk, the more able you're to, to convince them. If see, part of it too is we need to really have a vision, and then we need to bring the vision into the world. And True. the vision can't be your world sucks or this is evil, or, you know, because we think that because it's made us, you know, it's made us go on our search in a way, but that's not going to get people to change. Yeah. You know, the thing is, oh, you know, I'm so sorry this is happening to you. You know, you know, maybe this is something the community needs to know about and deal with. You know, who, you know, who are you connected with? Because, you know, maybe, you know, so you bring the ideas in, in, in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because because you just get people's hackles up, you know. If you, um, you know, point point out stuff that uh, maybe you know they're not going to be happy about, you know, having a face. I know. And you can. I did it the other day on the internet, and I shouldn't have. I should know better. And and you know, it just was me being upset about something, and I won't go into it now, so we don't start it all over again. 
and people got got into wars, and I took it off. I just said, nope, I don't. I'm sorry. I apologize, <laughs> everybody. I should have kept my my negative view to myself, and I will never do this again. Well, and it, it, not, you, all you do is get people upset. Well, well, not like that. Upset. But, but but you know I think too Kathy you know um in in the the you know the interview that we started off our conversation talking about reminded me of this you know because overall practically every comment uh was was very positive about the interview and one person said to me something about um oh I don't know I was perpetuating the Dalai Lama's offensiveness um, something to that effect, and and they because they felt when like when the Dalai Lama said um, it'll be Western women that will save the world, they thought that was offensive because you know it, it was you know they were saying it would be Western women as if Western women only meant white women, you know, as if right. Western women only meant rich women, and you know it, and that sort of goes back to what I was saying before. If you live in a if you you're living in your bubble where you only ever see racism, you only ever see sexism, and you don't ever see anything positive, then you know you might even take something wonderful like the Dalai Lama said and see something negative in it. You know, That's and right. and I and I said to this person, you know, the last time I looked, Western women included a lot of white women, but it also included a lot of women of other colors, socioeconomic backgrounds. Don't you think maybe he also meant we maybe have more resources, we have more access, had nothing really to do about the color of our skin or our uh, ethnicity or, or, or that, you know? And I said, why right. don't we just look at it as something positive and see that rather than looking for perfection? And when we don't find perfection in somebody's words, we tear it down. You know, I mean, because right. if we wait till everything's perfect to move forward, we'll never move forward. You know, so right. yeah, I mean, I, I, ju- know, I just go ahead. Western women. The other side of it is that we're fathers' daughters. We are conscious. We have a sure sense of ourselves. Not that that um, more that in other primitive, more um, ancient societies. And when I say primitive, I'm not looking down on that at all. But but it's more the tribe, and it's more um, there's it's more the collective. They have where we want to go, but we have to pass through. It's like the whole idea: of you leave paradise, you grow up, you get conscious, and you reclaim paradise, but on a whole different level. It's the same thing. We have to consciously reclaim our instincts. So that's going to bring the vibration of what we know and our wisdom up from just yeah. being in our instincts. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. being yeah. in emotional, being in the instincts, even being part of the participation mystique of ancient peoples, that was wonderful. They were at one with the earth like an avatar. But we've come beyond that, okay? And so, and, and to deal with the issues, we need to have both. We need to have the father-daughter part, but then we need to go beyond it back to that and then who are we like wow yeah try to yeah try to marry the two in a way yeah yeah well kathy another good uh, another good talk with you i uh, i appreciate uh, you coming on the show so much um before you leave us tonight I please you coming on um, oh well, you're in. You're you're welcome. Um, please tell us uh, your book titles, how people can reach you, what services you have available, all that good stuff. Okay, well, I have two books. Um, what, the first one is 
um, Wisdom's Daughters, How Women Can Change the World. I had written the book before the Dalai Lama said it, but I thought that it was a good... I thought that we agreed. I thought that was pretty good. Um, And it's based on this vision of the goddess who appears at the changing of the ages. And... um, and it's a and it's an, and it's a symbolic study of how do we reclaim our wisdom. Um, it's Jungian and there's dreams and there's stories in it. Um, then I there, I have a small ebook that is called Stories of the Earth and and for forty years it took me that I at each of the Wheel of the Year ceremonies I would try to write a fairy tale, and so it has eight fairy tales that at least came to me about the um, the eight holidays of the Wheel of the Pagan Wheel of the Year or the Celtic or whatever you want to call it. And you can find all of that on my website, which is www.wisdom-of-astrology.com, where if you look up Kathy with a C, Pagano, Pagan with an O, you'll find my stuff. Okay. Well, listen, okay. you um you you take it easy over there in Las Vegas. Um, you know, you 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 stay calm and keep everybody around you calm and I'll try to do the same thing over here. <laughs> we definitely hold down the fort these next two weeks. Oh, the thing is, that I meant to say too is is you know, meditate on these days. This is a great day to like really see if the try to feel the energy if you have the time. If you you know, to sit with it, We're, we feel it unconsciously and it, like, gets us jittery and crazy or dreamy, like one of the days in the next week and the Mercury is going to be next to Neptune. There's so much going on in the sky right now. So we'll be very dreamy that day. But, um, and as a matter of fact, if you want to know which day it is, it's on Wednesday the 18th. That would be a great day to meditate and really feel these energies. But if you can hook on to these energies, and it could take you out to wherever your soul needs to go and get the new story because you really want to get that imprint into you. So in these next two weeks, find time to meditate every day, I would say. Um, okay. Really important. Okay. okay. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for, for that advice and for your wisdom. We appreciate it. And um, we okay. will look forward to you um, coming back next month. Okay. Take care. Okay. Okay. Good night. God is blessed. Take care. Okay. And a word from Joe Corson. The psychic state is the collective unconscious, which is that consciousness of the planet. It's called the chthonic mind, the mind of the earth. Our ancestors understood that the animal and divine were all connected. They were together. That there wasn't a separation. That's what we are trying to return to, is that sense that our animal nature is divine. It doesn't get in the way of the divine it gets us closer to it. What's your idea of being fully alive as a human being? Because that's what's really spiritual. Write it down. Start writing your own Bible if you want. That's the sacred. And by that, I just mean sweaty, fun, happy sex. Well, that um, was uh, the clip from...
from Dancing with Gaia by Joe Carson, and uh, you've heard me talk about it before. Uh, But it is most definitely worth talking about again because it is a great DVD, and it comes with a 45-page mini book. And whether you are a newbie to all of this or you've been doing it for a while, I think it's one of these that uh, you most definitely want to have in your library. Uh, It will help you um, see the interconnectedness of all things. Uh, It talks about sacred sexuality, earth energy, uh, some really good stuff. So to um, find it uh, for yourself or a gift, or a friend, uh, or loved one, you just have to go to DancingWithGaia.com and you'll find it. Now, um, next week, um, I uh, the show will be on the 19th. Uh, tonight was a special show uh, on Tuesday because of, oh, an assortment of different things, mostly because Dr. Riefeld was only available Tuesday night. Um, but... Um, Uh, The next time I do the show, uh, it is going to be on the 19th, and the topic is going to be Building Modern Matriarchies with uh, Yeshe Matthews. And uh, we're going to be talking about um, how one goes about it, uh, where men fit into it, uh, what it means for goddess devotees to live in matriarchal communities, Um, You know, what are the pitfalls? Uh, Is it better than a patriarchal system? So, yeah, building modern communities. Uh, Also, later on in the month, uh, I'm also going to have Jason Miller with me. He wrote the book Sex, Sorcery, and Spirit, Secrets of Erotic Magic. Uh Uh-huh, I think that sounds kind of cool. And... um, yeah, that uh, I think that will about do it for the month of March. Uh, can you believe? Uh, just two more guests uh, for March, and then uh, we are on to April. Uh, but as long as we're in March, just a reminder, March 14th, this coming Saturday, is uh, uh, James's talk, uh, Dr. Riefeld's talk on Artemis at the Venice Library. It uh, kicks off the Joseph Campbell Roundtable uh, series that's going to be held there every other month. Uh, Then March 28th is the big uh, bash, the the party, the ritual uh, that we talked about tonight uh, for James's book. There'll be an Artemis ritual, recreating an authentic uh, ritual of Artemis on March 28th. And then if you are seriously thinking about taking that tour with us, Uh, Think about April Fool's Day. Let that be your deadline. You have to let us know by April 2nd, okay? So make up your mind by April Fool's Day if you're going to take the trip with us to Turkey. And um, I'd like to close with uh, 10 ways you can make a difference. Uh, You can do one of these. You can do two of these things. You can do all 10. Take responsibility for your own education, And you know what? You've done it by starting to listen to this show. Share knowledge. You know what? That's not hard to do either. Talk about the show. Read a new book. Tell your friends about it. Speak with your wallet. Well, what does that mean? Well, you know, there are apps out there now that when you're in the grocery store, they will tell you who made the toilet paper, for instance. And if you run across a brand of toilet paper that the Koch brothers manufactured, 
Well, you know they manufactured it, and you can pick a different roll of toilet paper. Imagine doing that, you know. Um, I know, you know, uh, you can do the same thing with restaurants. You know, if you find out that a restaurant uh, promotes uh, causes that uh, are not in support of the things you believe, don't honor that restaurant, okay? Um, The fourth thing you can do is think and act both locally and globally. Well, you know, in this day and age, it's different than it was in the 60s and 70s. Remember, they used to say, um, uh, think globally, act locally. Well, with the Internet, we can do both. We can do things for our own community, and we also, if you know, we have a little bit discretionary income, you know, we can participate in organizations like Kiva, for instance, where you can send $25 and loan uh, a woman uh, $25 to start a business, and she pays you that money back. Um, it's it's pretty good. So you can help people in third world countries um, have a better quality of life. Um, the fifth thing is be the change you want to be in the world. Yeah, we were talking about that a little while ago. Instead of maybe going through every day, seeing all the things that make you crazy, see the things that are going well. Think of the things you have to be grateful for. Be the change. Put out that positive energy of gratitude and most definitely practice reciprocity. Number six, reconcile your spirituality and your politics. That's an easy one. You don't vote for people who don't promote goddess ideals. It's that simple. Volunteer. Okay, that's number seven. I'm sure you can find something you're interested in and a group that needs your help. So volunteer. Uh, Next one, don't support organizations whose actions or values are contrary to yours. Okay, uh, easy enough. Uh, easy enough said. Uh, you know, if if you don't believe in, uh, I don't know, say Christianity, well, you know, don't go to their spaghetti dinner. Don't, uh, uh, you know, give give them money. Don't volunteer to dust the altar, so to speak. Uh, number ten, be proactive and positive. Always practicing gratitude and partnership. Well, I kind of said that already uh, to describe one of the previous ones, but it's important enough to repeat. And finally, number 10, here it comes. One more time. Okay, you know what that means. Find and use your sacred roar. Okay. Um, Well, I think that about does it for tonight, dear listeners. Uh, Thank you so much uh, for tuning in. Thank you for being the gas in my tank. Um, I hope you will seriously consider our tour to Turkey. If you have any questions at all about it, uh, let me know. And uh, I will see you March 19th when we talk about matriarchies. And uh, until then, be calm, be proactive, Be careful, see the positive out there, and make it a good week because I know you can. Absolutely. Make it a good week. And uh, we will close the show tonight. Uh, Oh, let's see. With uh, Be optimistic. 
yeah, I think that's a good idea. Be optimistic this week. And this is um, by the group Be Optimistic, and it's the song, just a quickie uh, snippet called Maria. Maria. 